Am I on? Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. Good to see everybody. I see some familiar faces and then I see a lot of not so familiar faces since the last time I was here. Um, but it's always a joy and a, a privilege to be here with you. Um, I want to invite you to turn with me into the book of Titus, the letter from Paul to uh, Titus. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 this morning. Before we read the text, I just want to start by way of introduction. With I've entitled this message, The Christian's Revolution, and I want to define what I mean by that before we get into it. Um, the word revolution, like many words in our day, can have many different meanings, and it seems that the meaning of the word depends on who's saying it and what their uh, intent, what they're really trying to get at. But according to Webster's Dictionary, the, the proper definition of revolution is the overthrow or renunciation of one government or ruler and the substitution of another by the governed. Now, this sounds very militaristic to us. Uh, in America, as our very nation was founded upon a revolution, a breakaway from a tyrannical government in England, and the building up of a new government, a new system of government that was more governed by the people rather than a monarchy. But the truth is that there are only two kingdoms that exist in this world. There's the kingdom of the earth, the kingdom ruled by the prince of the power of the air, and then there's the kingdom of God. And that's it. That, that's the two kingdoms. And we are, um, in this life, being governed by the system of the world. We are under this, and we feel it every day, we are underneath this system that is, in and of itself, very deceitful and tyrannical. It promises much, but delivers little in the way of what it promises. It promises personal freedom, but it actually enslaves. It promises eternal joy and happiness, but it actually leads to despair and hopelessness. And so here we are caught in this place where we're being sold a bill of goods, uh, 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 these things that look good and sound good, but they're unattainable. And then we as Christians, as the body of Christ, we know that there's another kingdom. Our eyes have been opened by the grace of God, by the power of His Holy Spirit through His Word, to realize that there is another kingdom, a greater kingdom, that is ruled by the God who is sovereign over both kingdoms, even though for a little while He has allowed the deceiver to be the ruler of this kingdom here on earth. And we feel within us this angst. We feel within us this desire to rebel, this desire to see His kingdom come here. 
And that is a noble thing. That is our prayer, right? In, in the Lord's prayer, let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we desire. But the question remains, how do we go about realizing that? How do we go about revolting from the system of this world so that the kingdom in which our heart truly lies can be realized here and now. There are many ways a revolution can take place. In fact, we know there's military revolutions by which uh, a military army overthrows a government and then installs into power uh, people to set up another government. We also know that there's kind of a silent revolution we've experienced since the 1960s in our country by which those who would, were not happy with the system of government that was put into place in our country sought to undermine it slowly but surely by instilling people with certain ideologies into the places where they could influence the culture into our education system, into our legal system, into our uh, government system, even into our church. And for decades, they have slowly eroded away the foundations that our nation were built on, the, the godly principles. They have slowly achieved a revolution by which now the people who hold to the principles taught in the scriptures are now the minority and they're now the squeaky wheel that needs to be replaced and, and done away with so that the majority can have their heaven on earth without God. So that's another way that revelation, re revolutions can take place, not just through military force, but, all, but through the undermining of the current foundations, the long-term weakening chiseling away and so a question is well how do we as Christians embark on a revolution to take it back to take back the culture to take back society societal norms that were once the foundation of our country And as you, you search the scriptures, as you are familiar with the scriptures, this was a uh, very preeminent question in the minds of the, the original disciples, was it not? They thought that Jesus was coming as a revolutionary, as a leader to overthrow the Roman oppressors and to install a new government by which Israel would be restored to its former glory. But they found out that that wasn't the plan. So how do we as Christians revolt against the current government to instill a new government? Well, I believe that an application to this text in Titus will give us the answer to that. And it may not be the answer that we want. But I believe it is the answer nonetheless. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. And we're going to read Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 
This is the Apostle Paul writing to one of his protégés, Titus. And he says this in chapter 2, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to, sh put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, I come, God, grateful that you are the sovereign God of the universe, that there is nothing that escapes your eye and there is nothing that is not under your authority and your power. And God, that as we have gathered in this place this morning, that it is not by chance or accident So we beg you this morning, God, by your spirit, speak through your word. God, prick our hearts, show us, reveal to us areas in our lives where this word needs to be applied. God, so that we may live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for the soul in here who may not be saved, who may not be regenerate. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do and you would breathe life. You would grant repentance and faith. And that you would create a new creature. And Lord, that everything that is said and everything that is done here this morning will be for the glory of your great name. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So a little background. The letter to Titus. We said Paul is writing to Titus. We believe this letter was written 
Uh, in the early 60s A.D., probably even up to the mid around 64, 65 A.D., and it was written because Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete. And if you look at a map, Crete is this good size island. It's not very uh, tall, but it's very wide, uh, a few hundred miles wide, out sitting in, in the middle of the ocean. And Paul, it is believed that after his first arrest and release in Rome, he is then uh, on another missionary, a fourth missionary journey. And he stops on the island of Crete, and there he leaves Titus as he continues on. And that he would eventually end up in Rome for the, the second arrest and the last, the final arrest. But we find from the, the first chapter in Titus that the reason why Paul has written this letter is to exhort Titus to set things right. This is the reason why I left you in Crete, is to set things right. To organize the church, to appoint elders in every town who are able to teach the truth and, contra and, and come against those who contradict the truth, to rebuke those who contradict the truth. And it's in light of this that we get to chapter 2, but before we dive into what exactly Paul is saying here, we need to understand what the context is. What was Crete like? So, uh, there were Cretans, if you read the, the beginning of Acts, at the day of Pentecost, Cretans were listed as one of the people groups that were present there as uh, the Holy Spirit came down on the believers and Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost and thousands of people are saved. And then at some point, as they had gathered there for the feast, they would have gone back. And that's how it's believed that the gospel... And the church started in Crete was Cretans who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and then brought the gospel back to their home island. But all is not well in Crete. Just as many of the other uh, cities and areas, regions where the gospel had spread to, it doesn't take long for false teachers to rise up. And Paul addresses them in chapter 1 that, that these are people who need to be silenced because they're leading whole households astray through the, the doctrine that they're, te that they're teaching. That they're adding constraints. They're adding things, that, observances of the law that people have to abide by in order to be saved. And, and Paul is exhorting encouraging and really instructing Titus to come against to, to come against them. But listen, and this is where we come to answering the question of the Christian's revolution. Listen to how Paul instructs Titus to go about fighting, combating these false teachers. He has just finished up chapter 1 where he's describing these false teachers it as uh, though they profess to know God, they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work in verse 16 of chapter 1. So very strong wording by the apostle. He's not pulling any punches. He's saying these people are worthless. These false teachers who have crept in, who are leading people astray, and they're doing it for filthy gain, for sordid gain, for money, 
gain this honestly. But in that text, he also talks about how the Cretans themselves are not the greatest people either. In fact, he quotes one of their poets who says, Cretans are always liars, wild beasts, lazy gluttons. That's how he describes his own people. And so Titus is here, and not only is he to combat false teachers, but he's to teach these gluttons, these wild beasts, sound doctrine. And so that's, that's the game plan. Now, it doesn't sound like much, does it? But you know, if you study church history, and that's something that we don't do anymore, but as you study church history... The greatest movement, and by the way, let me just say this, church history is world history. I've been amazed to see how much the shape of world history has been formed by what was going on in the church throughout the centuries. And I'm not just talking about the early church, I'm talking about the, the through every decade, I mean through every century it seems, there's been a movement by the remnant of God that has altered or, or, or shaped the course of history. And especially when you get to the Reformation and you get to the early, uh, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, all the way up to the early uh, 18, or to, through the 18 to the early 1900s, you see it is really what the church is doing, the church of God is doing that is shaping the cultures of the world, especially our own American culture. And then, you, as you study that, you see, and this is what they were doing. They weren't marching with swords and spears. They were proclaiming the Word of God. It was preachers proclaiming the Word of God and the Word of God having its effect by the power of the Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of the people to bring about change in their lives. And by changing their lives, it shaped the culture. And so this is the, the, the way that the Christian revolts against the current system of this world. He says to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what is healthy doctrine. That word doctrine simply means teaching. Teach what the Bible teaches. That's what he's saying. Teach what the scriptures teach. Teach what you have been taught by faithful men, including, Paul says, myself. These are the things you're to teach. And then he goes on to expound on those to certain groups of people. He says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. So he first addresses the older men. And basically what he's saying here, and, and, and if you look at what he is um, prescribing for older men in the way of sound doctrine. You, and you go and compare in chapter 1 what he prescribes as the men that Titus is supposed to appoint as elders of the church. You'll see a lot of similarities in those lists. 
In other words, when Paul is saying these are the kind of men that you should be looking for to appoint as elders in the church, as leaders in the church, the list isn't different. It's just these, make sure that these men have these, but this is what every man should be. Every man should be above reproach. Every man should be sober-minded, self-controlled, temperate, dignified, honorable, noble. A man that young men look at and want to emulate. That's what every man should be. But be sure that the men who you appoint to be elders and leaders in the church, that they are those things. Sober-minded, not given over to alcohol, able to think clearly about things. Dignified, honorable, noble, worthy of respect, self-control. That sounds familiar. That's a fruit of the Holy Spirit that Paul lays out in Galatians. Able to control yourself and able to control your emotions and able to control your passions. Sound or healthy in faith, love, and steadfastness, endurance, not someone who's going to give up easily when the going gets tough. He then moves on to the older women. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Again, there's this idea of being temperate, being self-controlled, of being able to tame your tongue, hold your tongue, know when you should say something and how you should say something. They are to teach what is good, and then he moves on to the younger women. And so to teach, to train the young women to love their husbands and children. The assumption there is that these older women have already been doing that. So now they're able to train the younger women to do this. And as, you, as we go through this list, and this list isn't exhaustive of what sound doctrine is, of what we're supposed to be training and teaching to one another, I want you to think about the things you see on TikTok or on Instagram on Facebook and how foreign these very characteristics are to the culture, to the, the women, the men of this day that we live in. Teaching them, training them to love their husbands and children. And this isn't He's not talking about in a sense of like just we would normally love our husbands or our, our spouses and our children. This is a, a deep abiding, serious kind of love, a selfless kind of love. To where not only do I love them by loving and doting on them, but I love them by making sure that I instill within them the things that are profitable for life. The things that matter, the things that God has commanded. It's to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, 
kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. It's so interesting. And, and some of us, as, as we read in 21st century America, as we read that working from home, being submissive to their husbands, kind of, there's a catch, right? There's kind of a, a cringe there because we've been so influenced by feminism that it just kind of is uncomfortable to say. And even those of us who would hold to that would be uncomfortable to say it in public because we know pretty much where everybody else stands on these things. But this is what Paul says. And, and, and he's saying this in a day where women, the norm was to work from home, to work at home, to be a keeper of the house, a, a housewife, a, a, a homemaker. That was the norm. And he still makes a point to say that. Let us, not be, let, let us be careful not to try to explain away what the scriptures say. Because of what our culture thinks about it. He says that they be kind and submissive to their own husbands. And if you, if you go and you read in his letters to Timothy, which uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus make up what we know as the pastoral epistles, where Paul is teaching these men how to be pastors of churches out as he has assigned them to certain places. These, these same things kind of keep coming up. These same themes keep coming up. Because just like in our day, in, in, in these ancient days, feminism was, was a thing. It's not new. It's not progressive. It's always been there. And so you had, you know, women being busybodies and going around getting in everybody else's business instead of tending their homes. And you had men who were just, you know, given over to alcohol and given over to whatever other passions of the day were instead of being sober-minded, instead of being self-controlled and noble, dignified. And so he's saying to Titus, these are the things we must teach older men to be, Older women to be so that they can teach the younger women to be these things. And then he goes on to younger men. He says, likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Again, three, four times throughout this text, that idea of self-controlled comes up. We are to be a people who are self-controlled, controlled of our, most, uh, of our emotions, not easily offended like the rest of the culture, but able to take what is dished out and to process it in a controlled manner and then have a weighed and reasoned response to it, not just fly off the handle on Facebook because we can and nobody uh, will, will, you know, nobody, we're not looking at anybody's face while we're doing it. Younger men, be self-controlled. And then he, he even goes farther, farther than that to Titus himself. He says, likewise, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, show yourselves in all respect 
yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So you model this for them, Titus. You live this lifestyle in front of them. And that's what elders and pastors should be doing in front. It's not just standing up saying, this is what God has said, but let me show you in the way that I live. The, the, the men who are esteemed leaders in the church should be this way. And we have many a church that are slowly dying or already dead because they have men who lead it who are just good at business. They're successful men and therefore it's thought, the thought pattern is that they're good at business, they must be able to run the church. But they're not these things. So two things about this list. Number one, it shows a, a, a practice, a culture of discipleship within a cross-generational community. Notice how he says the older teach the younger. The younger seek advice and wisdom from the older. It's a cross-generational community of believers that discipleship has taken place, whereby they're learning from one another. And so many times we segregate based on generation, don't we? I remember one of the fiercest battles I fought as a pastor of a church was when I went up, wanted to mix the senior adult ladies Sunday school group with the young ladies, the y younger ladies Sunday school group. I wanted to merge those because I thought there was so much wisdom that the older ladies could pass down to these younger ladies because they've already walked the road that these younger ladies are walking in motherhood and, and as being a wife and And it was so outside the norm of what we know to do as, as 21st century, 20th century believers. The, the, the older ladies, they, want, they called a meeting. And they just said, you know, I just don't think that that's really a good idea. And of course, they didn't have any reason other than we don't want to do that. <laughs> we enjoy our little, this is our time. Right? This is our little club. And it really kind of throws it off when you bring younger ladies in the mix. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Cross-generational community of believers who disciple one another. And then the other thing that we notice is that in our culture, the culture doesn't want us to be teaching these things. The culture doesn't want us to be saying these things to them, but do they not appreciate when we live this way? Does not the culture, people in the culture, unbelievers in the culture, don't they still appreciate when they see people living this way? Even though they don't want to live this way, it still has an impact. 
it still has an impact when, when people live this way. I know, I mean, there's guys that I work with who cuss like sailors, but anytime I get around them, they, they won't cuss or they'll apologize if they do. And I've never said anything to them about not cussing. I've never said, you really shouldn't talk that way. Or I've never said that I'm a preacher or anything that would lead them to believe. I just don't cuss. And something about that has, you know, they appreciate that. So now let's get to, here's where Paul goes as he usually does. He, he flips flops from a theological to a doctrine, okay? From theology to doctrine. And here's why. Because our theology defines our doctrine, our teaching. Our theology, what we believe about God defines and drives our doctrine, the way we live, the way we teach about how we're supposed to live, okay? And so Paul here in verse 11, he, he points out the theological basis for why we're supposed to teach sound doctrine and that this is sound doctrine, the way we live, self-controlled, temperate, kind, dignified, not slanders, not gossips. Here's the theological basis. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, more, depending on who you read, more properly uh, translated, for the grace of God that brought salvation has appeared to all people. In other words, salvation the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is now front and center. It's now out in the, in the public. And he's referring to possibly these all people, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, even slaves. He gets to the theological heart of it is the gospel. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. So here's, here's what the, the gospel brings. The gospel brings salvation. Amen. That is, we're saved by faith in believing that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was in our place, a substitutionary atonement whereby he appeased the wrath of God toward our sins. And then he rose again to defeat death, to redeem us from the curse, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and from the power of Satan. And so this gospel, this good news, it brought salvation. It also brought something else. Holy living. He says it trains us, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's two sides of the same coin. A holy life is one that not only renounces uh, worldly passions and ungodliness, but also live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's two sides of the, it's the, the positive and the negative of the same coin. Yes, we renounce ungodliness. Yes, we uh, renounce, we reject worldly passions. 
But we do so by living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And again, as he did in so many of his epistles, get the order here. It's not do this, live this way so that you can be saved. It's this is what the grace of God has done. This is what the gospel has accomplished. Is that it trains us in holy living. We, we live holy, we pursue holiness, not to earn salvation, but because we have been granted salvation. And he says, not only does it bring salvation, not only does it bring holy living, but it brings a, a glorious future. That we await that we await. He says, waiting, verse 13, for our blessed hope. And what is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what we long for. So here's the picture I want you to walk away with. Okay? Here's the picture that the Bible paints of Christians. Okay? Because we're thinking about revolution here. And here's the picture I want you to get. The way the Christian revolts is that while we are in this kingdom, the kingdom of earth, ruled by someone other than our king, though by his authority he has allowed it, we are living as citizens first for another kingdom. A kingdom who is, that is not here yet. It's already, but not yet. And so we're living for a king, Jesus, who is not reigning in the, in, the, in the complete sense of the word. In other words, at this moment, all knees have not bowed. All tongues have not confessed Jesus as Lord, but they will. And so we're to live as people that way. And this is the way we revolt against the current system. Is we live these temperate godly lives. So that... His word may not be reviled so that uh, his doctrine is adorned. It is put out for everybody to see so that all will see that it's not just a imaginary crutch that people need to get through life. But in fact, it is a reality that changes the very way that people live. That it is supernatural. It's not human. It's not man-made. It's not manufactured or conjured up. It is the power of God working in the lives of people. And the reason why we do this is verse 14. This Savior, this King Jesus Christ, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. This is what he is accomplishing. This is what he's creating. A people that are his people. Citizens of his kingdom. And they are known and they were created to be zealous for good works. And that is how we revolt. That is how we... Um, rebel against the current system as we teach 
one another to live. We model it and we teach one another, no matter what stage of life we're at, to live sober-minded, self-controlled, dignified, godly lives. To live according to everything that our King has commanded in His book. Is that not kind of the crux of the Great Commission? Go and baptize us. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the Christian's revolution. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that as your word has been proclaimed, Lord, that you would uh, affect the change in the hearts of your people here this morning, that you will cause them to examine their lives that you will cause them to uh, check it according to uh, what you have said in your word. And Lord, that you will grant the boldness, the courage, the strength to make whatever changes necessary. Lord, to live in this way. God, knowing that it is not uh, our power, our own human strength, that we um, try to live the, in this way, but it is a a recognition and submission to your spirit that he is the only one who can affect this change in our life. And so we submit and we cry out, help me where I'm weak. Strengthen me where I'm weak. God, for the person who is in here that may be lost again, I plead that you would do what only you can do, that you would change their heart as they have heard the gospel this morning. And Lord, that above all else, that you would glorify and magnify your Son, Jesus Christ, in our hearts. Lord, that as we think about our place in this world, that we will recognize and we will just completely sell out to the fact, the, the fact that we serve another king that is in another kingdom, and we longingly await for the day when we will see him face to face. But until that day, we will continue to serve him here in the way that he has prescribed for the glory of his name. Amen.